This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. There are a lot of things sold on the black market. And, you know, you can see why some of those things are commodities. But what about sand? Like, why would there be such a market for sand? Well, the sand trade is worth hundreds of billions of dollars a year, thanks to the fact that it is a key ingredient in concrete. But harvesting sand has become a really big money industry uh, illegally with a lot of shady actions that are going on. And our next guest has been writing about this. David A. Taylor is a contributing writer for Scientific American and author of Cork Wars, Intrigue and Industry in World War II. Uh, Thanks so much for being here, David. Thanks for having me, Cindy. Do people realize what a big commodity sand is? I don't. If they're like me, uh, they don't uh, typically. I mean, I've been writing about environmental subjects for years and years. And uh, when I uh, talked to someone and they mentioned sand trafficking, I was stunned. So I think it's a, it's a surprise for a lot of people. So was that enough to make you think, you know what, I have to look into this? It definitely, yeah, it intrigued me. I went back to a source I had written about wildlife trafficking before, and I went back to the source who told me uh, some about the uh, international organized crime that was involved in wildlife tracking. I said, well, you know, is there something that hasn't been reported on much that you'd want to see more about? And she said, yeah, sand mafias. It's a big problem. And I thought uh, that my mind just could have exploded. Wow. Okay. What is sand mafias? It is um, the phenomenon of organized crime uh, taking advantage of this entry point of uh, sand, this huge demand for sand in construction, uh, which has grown because of the way that cities are growing and the way that sand, as you mentioned in the open, is so uh, important to the way uh, construction gets done. Concrete, cement, roads, they all involve uh, sand to a large degree. And so where are they finding it? Where is it being kind of stolen from or trafficked from? It's often being taken from um, riverbeds and coastlines, usually in the same country as where the cities are growing up. So, for example, for the story, I uh, spoke with um, researcher Halanishi Yusuf, uh, and she is a Kenyan uh, researcher. She grew up a couple of hours outside of Nairobi. Uh, And she remembered um, growing up in the early 2000s, seeing these trucks coming to the river where she would draw water. And uh, um, by that point, she was going to school, but she saw them um, coming and getting, uh, pulling sand out. And said, well, you know, that doesn't affect her. It just looked like uh, kind of something that people did to make money. And it was. It was making money um, both for the locals who would help with the, the, uh, the team's pulling the sand, but especially for the uh, transport uh, syndicates taking the sand to Nairobi, where it was in big demand. Sand is syndicates too. So is is it because of that same reason then, David, because people don't really think about sand, that it kind of happens like this? 
That's right. I think because there's, you know, people don't think about it. There's not a lot of press attention to this. There's not a lot of official spotlight on cleaning up the sand business. So it's easy for um, crime networks to get involved. They don't have to worry about uh, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, court uh, cases. There's not a lot of enforcement around sand. So then are, is any government out there responding to this? Because what are the repercussions of not paying attention to this? Well, the repercussions, as uh, Ms. Yusuf found in Kenya, was that uh, that local it had a big effect on the ecosystems and on the communities in that area of uh, Makaweni County, where she was from. It, uh, it it kind of in combination with other climatic changes, it was she saw the uh, the, the farming in there got uh, much drier. She uh, studied uh, physical geography, so she knew that sand. In a sense, especially in semi-arid and arid areas, it acts like a sponge. Um, so, in the riverbed, it's important to have the sand uh, recharged. From, uh, you know, you can you can take some of it, and it will replenish itself from up upstream. But if you take uh, trucks and trucks full, uh, it makes it harder to replenish, and it hurts the uh, ecosystem, in, and it hurts the communities farming there, and it uh, causes uh, conflict. So, she uh, ultimately. Um, uh, took a job with the, the community, uh, the, the county authority for uh, monitoring sand and made a difference. Um, and her experience became a model in kind of fighting back against this um, illegal trafficking that was uh, that continues to hurt um, communities and, and ecosystems in many places. Okay. And so where would you say, is there an area of the world where this is the biggest problem? You see a lot more, I guess, uh, press about like even the term sand mafias comes up a lot in uh, India and in China. They're the probably have the biggest demand because they're urbanizing so fast. I mean, China used more sand in three years um, uh, in the 2010s than uh, the U.S. did in um, all of the 20th century. So it's a huge demand wow. in those countries. Uh, but it's you find it uh, worldwide. You find it in North America and um, Latin America and Europe. And uh, another researcher I spoke with, um, uh, a man named Abdul Kader uh, Abdurrahmane, uh, who was studying sand uh, trafficking in Morocco, saw it uh, in uh, Northwest Africa and seeing saw it uh, exported from from there to to uh, the to Europe. So it's not just a localized problem. And so as long, I understand that sand prices are, are pretty high, right? Like legitimate on the market sand prices are high, which also probably drives this. That's right. The rising demand uh, raises the, 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 uh, the prices and that raises the interest of more and more, um, you know, syndicates saying, oh, this is worth, you know, this is worth investing in dozens of trucks to, uh, to, to haul this stuff. So how do people know then, I mean, you buy sand for whatever reason, like how do you know you're buying it legitimately? That's a really great question because that's what's uh, driving this uh, kind of this underground, the black market is the fact that there's not a lot of certification for for sand. Uh, there are some national efforts to do it and I know some uh, government agencies uh, have started to require this kind of a um, certification of where the sand is coming from. But there's not yet an international kind of standard the way there is uh, for timber, say, that the, uh, you know, the, the forest steward uh, certification model, the FSC model, for you know, making a clean, uh, you know, 
chain, the value chain, um, there's, uh, it's still in the process. The, the, the UN environmental program has been trying to work on this, but it's, it's really hard, hard problem to, to get your arms around, partly because um, people just still don't know that there's a problem. Exactly what I was thinking too. And you, thank you, David, for your time on that this morning. Thanks so much for having me. That's David A. Taylor, contributing writer for Scientific American, author of Cork Wars, Intrigue and Industry in World War II, but writing right now about sand and the sand mafia, the black market for sand. Now, the market for sand is worth hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars a year, so you can see why. And it's expensive right now if you need to buy sand. And so people buy it on the black market, but people have to know about the problem in order for something to be done about it, as David points out. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot to break down with Vaughn Palmer this morning. Some kind of late Friday afternoon announcements to, to get to. So Vaughn, what are we starting with? Well, let's just try this as a question for you and the listener. If the government were planning a fundamental change in the management of crown land in the province and access to crown land, When you consider that 94% of British Columbia is crown land, don't you think they might have mentioned that plan to the public and not waited for the news media to discover that what they were up to? Yes, that sounds like it would be a pretty big deal. (laughs) It is a big deal. It's an enormous deal. And the New Democrats are planning to enact this change in the management of crown land this spring before the legislature adjourns in mid-May. So I did a piece on it in uh, The Sun on Saturday. Uh, My friend Justine Hunter has a piece on it in The Globe today, and we both noticed the same thing. The government launched a call for public feedback on this enormous change, and they didn't put out a news release on it. They just did it back in the beginning of January, um, told stakeholders, didn't put a list out, and they're now saying, well, there's no story here. I mean, this is nothing. We're not really doing anything big. Well, it's clear they're doing something enormous because what will happen is right now you want access to crown land in British Columbia for anything from a tenure to uh, water, uh, build a dam, or mining, forestry. There's two dozen ways you can access crown land. That decision is made by the minister. We're moving to a situation, and the New Democrats are quite clear this is coming in legislation this spring. We're moving to a situation where it'll be co-management with the province's more than 200 First Nations, and it will be on the basis of consent. Now, they say consent doesn't mean a veto, but you can spend a lot of time thumbing through the dictionary to look for some distinction on that issue. But, you know, the main thing here, Simi, is they just announced, didn't announce it. They just launched it in January. They didn't tell anybody. And the minister didn't even come out and confirm it until there was the story in the Sun on Saturday and the story in the Globe today. This is the first public notice they've given. So when they say, Simi, this is no big deal, are you going to believe them, given how secretive they've been about it so far? Yeah, and that's obviously going to put people's backs up right away, whether this is a good idea or not. Yeah, this is the most feedback I've had to anything I've written in paper in in some months. Uh, and, And it's all along those lines. Why didn't they tell us? Where are they headed on this? 
what does this do to public access to crown land? <clears throat> and that's all up in the air. I mean, I it's very hard to say anything about it. I saw the minister was on uh, Nathan Collins, the minister in charge of this. He was on social media, Twitter account on Saturday after the peace appear saying, let me be really clear. This is really not mean very much. Well, again, it's the secretiveness of what well, they're yeah. doing. You get from this, they don't want a lot of feedback. You can go to Engage BC, which is the government feedback site, and you can find there uh, a process where you can send in a submission. They only want written submissions, uh, and there's no guarantee they're going to listen because if you read their website, they are starting to draft the legislation to make this change in February, which is just a few days away. They intend to enact it by the time the House adjourns in May. So to be cynical about it, they didn't tell us what they were doing in the first place. How likely are they to listen to anything the public says? It sounds very much like they've already made up their minds. We're moving to legislation that will allow co-management of Crown land with an, on a consent basis with First Nations. Okay, so is this public consultation on right now, Vaughn, if people yeah, were to right yeah, go in and weigh yeah, in? Yeah, it's on right now. So there's a, a website called Engage BC, and if you go there, you'll see there's, there's a whole range of things that you can click on, and <clears throat> they're, they're looking for feedback. Uh, they didn't highlight this one, but it's there. Uh, there's a link in the Globe piece today. There's a link in my piece in the Sun on Saturday, or you can just go to Engage BC and look for it. It's there. So yeah, you can weigh in. Uh, you know, they're clear about it. Uh, my favorite note on the feedback is no profanity. Um, needless to say, some people did use profanity when they discovered what the government was trying to sneak past them on this. When, I mean, you know, Simi, if the government's launched a major exercise, they don't, they meet it. Usually you get a, a news conference with validators and premier and ministers saying there, we want to know what you think of all this. When they don't do that, and they didn't do that here, you wonder, what are they trying to hide? What are they trying to sneak through without public response? And I think it's awfully suspicious that they launched this look for feedback. And interestingly enough, on the calendar, the feedback is due back by the 31st of March. Well, the way you draft legislation in this province, the legislation will all be drafted by then. It, it takes weeks to draft legislation. So, yeah, you can send them your feedback and tell them you don't think it's a good idea and try to keep the profanity out of it. They're more likely to listen. But... At the end of the day, it's pretty clear the New Democrats are going to do this, never mind what the public thinks. And they would, frankly, just as soon we hadn't even noticed that that's what they're doing. Oh, man, they're going to poison this before, whether it's a good yeah. idea or not. They're yeah, just going to no, turn the public against it and it's going to ruin any. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
chance of it being successful. You're right, you know, and I think some First Nations will be upset because a lot of the First Nations leaders in the province, they know you have to bring the public along with yes. all these changes, right? And the last thing they want is a backlash because the government is trying to sneak something through. Yeah, not because they did anything. Discussion. Right, yeah. they didn't do anything and they're going to get blamed for it. Yeah, no, that's true. And, they, and, and you're really seeing me the really awful thing is, is that the people who get really angry about this, they should get mad at the New Democrats. They shouldn't get mad at First Nations. But, you know, as First Nations leaders will tell you, no, they get they get the abuse. They yes. get the nastiness, right? And, and that's another reason why sneaking something like this through is a terrible political mistake. And it's bad for the political culture of the province. All right, there's more to talk about with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. So, Vaughn, a couple things I wanted to ask you about. One having to do with uh, some of these preliminary numbers for international students in BC. Yeah, so the BC government is trying very hard to work with Ottawa on the changes for international students. The BC government concedes there's a problem uh, out there, mostly Ottawa's fault, I might add, but okay, Ottawa has the power to cap the number of international students and BC is hoping, hoping that it won't just be a blanket cap, that there'll be exemptions for the BC government to get people here who are going to help with some of the major shortages of workers that we have. And healthcare is the biggest one, right? So apparently, because the premier said this on the weekend, the preliminary numbers came to BC on the weekend, Ottawa said, okay, here's your numbers. Now, because BC gets a disproportionate number of international students, it is also going to get a bigger cap. Uh, EB was generous enough to say, well, this is going to pose a major challenge. So BC is trying to go back and forth on this, trying to get the federal government to engage and acknowledge up front that the cap will be tailored in British Columbia for really areas that we really need more people and we need more skills, we need more training, we need more healthcare workers. That's the, that's the hope. In return, you're going to get a BC government trying to crack down on the worst abuses out there. So EB and uh, Selena Robinson, the advanced education minister, they've made it clear that BC is going to uh, be tougher in issuing credentials to private schools in particular And the province is also going to strip the credentialing away from the worst abusers. And Simi, they're going to try to make sure this doesn't hurt our public universities that, one, need the money from international students, but two, issue legitimate credentials. Nobody calls Simon Fraser University a diploma mill, right? It's it's these more than 200 private places, some of which are so... You know, I, I, we're going to get announcements. Um, we're going to get Selena Robinson on this, and maybe they'll share some of the numbers as well. But this is a struggle, and it shouldn't be. You know, the BC government has recognized already, Simi, uh, what Ottawa's trying to do and agrees with the overall goal. It's uh, BC already shared its plan with the federal government. It amazes me that they haven't been able to get a level of understanding on this when, again, how many times do we have to say it? Justin Trudeau wouldn't even be prime minister without the support of the federal NDP. So why can't BC get more cooperation? Why are they struggling beyond me? 
Yeah, that is another one. Also, I want to ask you about the... I don't even know where to start with this one. This was the post made by the Premier. Obviously, staffers, you know, t- did this for Holocaust Remembrance Day. What the heck went wrong here? Well, so you had two postings. This is the thing about it that makes one suspicious. So the Premier's Twitter account and then Instagram... Uh, The headline is marking International Holocaust Remembrance Day, but the text is marking the anniversary, which is this week, of the attack on the mosque in Quebec City. And so the the text deals, deals with attacks on Muslims and Islamophobia. It goes without saying, this is a pretty sensitive time to mix up those uh, two yeah. issues. It's possible in your mind to be concerned about both, but that's not a combination you want to put out there. They credit, they they came, they took down the postings fairly quickly. Uh, although people that monitor these things managed to capture both of them. So the Twitter one and the Instagram one, and they're out there, social media. And then the premier came out with an apology, said he was sorry it happened, blamed a staffer, and in this case, you know, the premier doesn't actually write his own social media postings. They're written for him. He presumably signs off on them, but it's a staffing thing, fair enough. Um, I don't, I always tend to credit incompetence where... You know, you don't need a conspiracy to explain it, but it does look pretty damn suspicious when there are two postings that yeah. both are that embarrassing. Yeah, and, on a subject you know, that is as sensitive yeah. as the one that you talked about. Yeah. Like, you would think that if you work in the premier's office and you handle his his open communication with the public, that you are more careful than that. Uh, you would, and I think E.B. is going to get asked if he's available today whether or not anybody's fired over this. Yeah. I mean, this is such a nasty mistake, and it's so easy to be suspicious because there were two postings. I mean, yeah, mechanically I can see how you could mix up the text that was written for Monday and instead post it, you know. On, I can see it happening, right? But it, it's so I don't know, Vaughn. I don't. suspicious and bad that I think uh, his explanation should have been better about what actually happened. And I go, you know, is this not a firing offense? I think so. I think uh, to me, it is not a coincidence. Like I am very suspicious when I, the moment I saw it, I thought, oh no, no, this, this does not sit right with me at all. So yeah, I would ask the questions too today. Um, And I want to follow up on that tomorrow, but also very quickly, I wanted to talk about this whole meta situation. What, and the cell phone ban in schools, like the premier announced that late Friday too, but what, what does this have to do with the social media companies? Well, there's two things that he announced on Friday, and the the cell phone ban in schools is true. The BC United opposition has been calling for that for months, so that's the government following them. But the interesting thing is they're going to create, they're going to go to court uh, and enable people to go to court to sue the big social media companies, Meta in particular, so Facebook, uh, for, as E.B. put it, the damage they've done to people. And he specifically mentioned that this will be based on the government's legislation, which was successful to stick the tobacco companies with the damage and to go after opioid manufacturers. So there is precedent. But Simi, I mean, these are the most powerful corporations in the world. Exactly. Big tobacco, big pharma, they're nothing like big social media. 
the resources they have, the monopoly hold they have, their utter unwillingness to listen to anybody on anything. Uh, I mean, the, yeah. I, I wish the premier luck on this one. No kidding. I, and we'll, we'll be I talking. I don't doubt his good intentions, but I do doubt his chances of success. So There's one more thing for us to continue to yeah. talk about. Vaughn, thank you for that. <laughs> Bye-bye, Cindy. That is Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. Things in Ottawa are about to get a whole lot more interesting this week. MPs are back. They are ready to get to work. And on the agenda is the much-anticipated public inquiry into foreign interference. And today is actually the first day of public hearings. So we're going to get to all of that. Global's chief political correspondent, David Aiken, is keeping an eye on all of it. Joins us now. Good morning, David. Why don't we start with the MPs on the government side of the House? What are the big themes in the next few weeks for the Trudeau Liberals? Well, the big theme, Sim, for the Liberals is getting out from under these terrible poll numbers. I mean, they're behind the Conservatives by double digits, have been for months. And really, that's because the, the, uh, those who we poll have concluded that when it comes to housing and affordability issues, the government is just not cutting it. Those are the number one and two issues for, uh, for those in English Canada, housing and affordability. So the Trudeau Liberals have to demonstrate somehow they're confident on the file, they're managing the file. Um, I would say watch for Sean Fraser. He's going to be the key minister the government is going to put out on this. He's the housing and infrastructure minister, young guy from uh, Nova Scotia. Um, he's got some energy, and he's been performing well. It, it, it could be a very tall order, though, to, to pull these numbers up. We're going to hear from Fraser later today. He's giving a press conference with the finance minister, Krista Freeland. We don't expect any big announcements. It's really just sort of an update. The big uh, push will be towards... The federal budget and cabinet and the, the, the government uh, caucus will begin shaping that budget uh, this week and for the next few weeks. Budgets are normally tabled in March. Here we are at the end of January, not a lot of time uh, to figure out what the budget is. But that budget priority has got to be addressing affordability and housing if the Liberals are to pull their numbers back up. Okay, and let's talk about the opposition here, too. You mentioned they're riding high in the polls, but how do they kind of maintain that momentum? You know, I, I, one, of the re, one of the ways they're going to do this, I think, is by announcing people with really strong resumes who are ready to join Team Poilievre. And we saw that in BC last week mm-hmm. when Ellis Ross decided to uh, jump on board with, uh, with uh, the Conservatives. Of course, Ellis Ross, former BC cabinet minister, indigenous leader, he's going to run up in Skeena Bulkley Valley uh, against uh, New Democrat Taylor Backrack up there. Um, that's a blow that, that I think that catch by Paul, yeah, a bit of a blow to BC United. I know they were hoping that he would come back and run for them. But in any event, there's one big get. And then here in Ontario, um, a, uh, one of Doug Ford's cabinet ministers, a guy named Parm Gill, he quit cabinet because he wants to run for Paul, yeah. Gill had been an MP for the riding of Milton, federal riding of Milton, uh, he got, got beaten in election. Now he wants back. And then we're also learning this morning that a Toronto City Councilor, a woman named Karen Stintz, wants to run in the riding right now held by the former public safety minister, Marco Mendicini. So city councillors, former cabinet ministers, a you know influential indigenous leader, all wanting to join Pierre Poiliev. That's how the Conservatives are maintaining momentum as they start the session. For the New Democrats, uh, they've just spent the last three days in the land of last week in Edmonton, caucus retreat. And really what Jagmeet Singh and the New Democrats are pushing for is more progress on that deal they signed with the Liberals. Progress on national farm care, national dental care. And, of course, if there's not enough progress, the NDP could pull their support. We'll see if that happens. And I, I want to just touch about the Bloc Québécois mm-hmm. because I mentioned in English Canada, uh, housing and affordability are the top priorities. Not so in Quebec. 
in Quebec, it's unique among all regions of the country, climate change and uh, the environment are still the top priorities for Quebec voters. I know a lot of British Columbians think climate change is a big deal, but the polls show that even British Columbians right now, climate change not as important as housing and affordability. But in Quebec, climate change still is a very important topic. And to the, the extent that the Bloc Québécois understand that, they'll be pushing the Trudeau government for more action on the climate change plan. So interesting. Okay, let's talk to the, about this public inquiry into foreign interference. It starts today. What's on the agenda this week? Well, first we've got a call, give it a name, uh, Simi. It's the Public Inquiry into Foreign Interference, P-I-F-I. I'm calling it PIFI. You may want to call it PIFI, <laughs> but it's going to be one or the other. Um, but its first task is, is a bit of a tricky one. It's, it, today we're just getting from lawyers uh, for the inquiry, and they're going to be sorting out some issues that are, are tricky. This inquiry is supposed to look into what is essentially top-secret information about the activity activities of operatives from China, from Russia, from Iran, from India, and what they've been doing here in Canada, but the information is top secret. So how do we put this as much as we can on the public record? So that's an important issue that will be sorted out. This is the first of three uh, sort of sets of weekly hearings. We'll have another one in March, another one in the fall, um, getting at the the, the heart of of interference. But you know what? We've already got a, a live example today. Our colleague Stuart Bell has a story on our website, globalnews.ca, about what looks to be a uh, Vancouver resident, a woman, Chinese national, who was deported, ordered deported last August. We're just learning about this now. Why? Because she had engaged in essentially espionage against members of the Chinese diaspora, pressuring people, trying to silence dissent, and Canadian uh, border officials said enough of that, and they have ordered her uh, deported. So there is a case right off the top that... Piffy or PiFi is going to be seized with today. Interesting. And so what countries are they looking at here? Because I know they, they've added some too, right? They just added India. And I think that was, well, I mean, people in BC know about that, uh, that murder in Surrey that, in, you know, alleged to involve Indian authorities. So India is a late add to the other three. China really is, this started with Chinese interference, but we know that Iran has been trying to pressure people here. Russia as well. So those are the four countries that are going to be in the spotlight here. China, Russia, Iran, and India is sort of a late addition to that. Okay. And we will get some testimony this week. It's not just going to be procedural stuff. Possibly. Um, I think the big, we're going to hear from some security officials, people from CSIS, et cetera. Uh, Probably the most notable witness we won't see until Friday will be the public safety minister, uh, Dominic LeBlanc, the one that he's the minister in charge of. Uh, all those agencies, uh, CSITs, et cetera. Um, but until then, it's some academics tomorrow, as you say, some security officials uh, Wednesday and Thursday, and then uh, Dominic LeBlanc on Friday. All right. Thank you so much, David. Okay. Thanks, Amy. Cheers. That's David Aiken, our chief political correspondent for Global News, talking about what's going on in Ottawa this week. We will closely be watching that public inquiry on foreign interference. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, though, we're going to talk about deep fakes. And these are becoming more and more prevalent out there. And our Scott Shantz is with us now. Scott, I'm just concerned that not enough people are 
that we are all not skeptical enough of this. Yes, there's a ton of concern around this, and it's nothing new. Like, deepfakes have been around there for a couple of years. What we're talking about is, like, AI or Photoshopped, essentially generated images of something that's not real. Um, They've been around about celebrities for a long time, but it all caught fever over the last four or five days because an AI created some explicit deepfakes of Taylor Swift. And when you mess with Taylor Swift and the Swifties, that's when you know that the world is going to uh, sort of stand up and take notice. And an interesting thing happened because essentially it broke the internet and not in the way that she's broken the internet before where everybody loves Taylor Swift so much that things get shared and the system can't keep up. But X, which used to be Twitter, actually canceled all searches of Taylor Swift for a short period of time to stop these type of searches and images from getting spread. And that brings about some ethical questions as well in terms of like, how do you police what gets searched on the internet and stuff? So there's a lot going on here. So I'm speaking with a lawyer from UBC. Her name is Kristen Thomason, and she deals with this type of stuff, deep fakes, um, privacy usage, all of that type of stuff. So first question, Kristen, Is it illegal to make a fake image of another person? That is an excellent and complicated question to answer. Um, In part, I mean, I can give you the lawyer's answer, which is it depends. um, In part, it really depends on like, what is somebody making the image for? Um, How is that image ultimately used? Is it made public or is it just made for personal uses, there is some uncertainty. I would say there's some legal uncertainty around some of these questions. Um, Essentially, what it comes down to right now, at least in Canada, is how would the laws that we have right now apply to this, um, you know, this technological capability to do something slightly different than the laws envisioned when they were created? So, I mean, I'm a legal academic, so I think about, like, why do these laws even exist in the first place? And I would say a lot of our privacy laws are in Canada are designed to get at the kind of dignitary of self-autonomy harm that we really see exemplified with something like a, a synthetic creation of an intimate image. And so ought to be applicable, at least in many cases where these kinds of images are created and that image is an intimate image. Uh, but to just create an image of somebody else using artificial intelligence, I think, is in a tenuous place right now. Um, there are some copyright protections that might be relevant. Like um, if you're the person who took the source images, you have a, a legal interest in those images. If you're the person who's portrayed in the images, like there's also been a deep fake of Taylor Swift and there have been others as well. Um, selling products. And so there could be some copyright laws that apply in that case where somebody's image is used, but you have to be famous or known for those to uh, usually apply. So it's, it is a really complex landscape right now. And I think that's uh, what's really highlighting for people that it would be helpful to have more clarity, but you touched on this. I think I mean, I've quoted this line of hers before, but, you know, X marks the spot where we fell apart is a line from one of her songs. And it really drives home, you know, there's a lot of complexity around creating these kind of images. But there's also a really, I think, clear responsibility for companies that make distributing this kind of information really easy to have some kind of guardrail in place to quickly... um, step in, intervene, and remove that content without 
having to completely silence that person. I think you're, you're hinting at this, but now X has just completely um, shut down searches of Taylor Swift altogether, which is, I, I think, an abdication of responsibility. It's going so far in the opposite direction that it's now completely silenced conversation about her, which um, is exactly what a lot of these deepfakes do is, is silence um, engagement in public. And I think that that's a really terrible consequence that needs to be considered in however the law is designed to address some of these issues. Right. Because I mean, for Taylor Swift to have her searches canceled for 24 hours, that's not really going to affect her at the end of the day, but maybe you're an aspiring artist and, you know, to sort of have your, 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 the ability for people to search you out for 24 hours, that could have some, some serious consequences. So taking that power away, I mean, it seems like this is such a, a multifaceted ongoing thing. And it, in a way, it feels so daunting to me. Like, are we ever going to get ahead of this in a world where we have, like, a free and open internet? It just feels like these two things stand in absolute, like, um, competition. I mean, if I can say something that feels, to me at least, you know, again, as, like, somebody who studies why do we even have laws in the first place, those kinds of questions, if I can say something slightly optimistic, it's that, Really, when it comes down to it, like we do have rights that are recognized in the law. I think increasingly the law has recognized the real rights infringements that happen with um, the creation and distribution of intimate images, especially distribution. I think we could benefit from more clarity around creation. Um, you know, if, if what we do is focus, because I, I study these technologies that are changing all the time over the time that I've been working in this field of AI and robotics. You know, there's been many hype cycles, many iterations of the technology that's sort of at issue, most at issue. And I think ultimately what it comes down to is if we focus on really clarifying our rights and then most importantly, how do we get a remedy quickly and effectively when those rights are violated? And that's something that I think is really positive about this new BC legislation. Like sometimes the most important thing in the moment is get that picture off the Internet. So how do we create more structures like that? So that when people recognize that their rights have been violated, they have, you know, step-by-step guidance in terms of what they need to do next that will actually accomplish something. And then, of course, really importantly, you know, how can we focus on the infrastructural issues like, you know, ensuring that social media companies are responsible, um, ensuring that the designers of these tools are responsible for mitigating this as much as they possibly can. Uh, because that will save individuals from having to constantly enforce their own rights, which obviously is not a very fulfilling outcome. Uh, but I think that there are ways that, that the law can be designed to, to deal with some of those concerns, because I think you're right, that striking that balance is a complicated process. Kristen Thomason, she's a law professor at UBC, and uh, I think that this is going to be an ongoing conversation, Simi, as uh, AI continues to develop and advance. We need to get on this. Yes. It's going to go, it's already running past us, and we're trying to rein it in, and we see, what, look, look what happened to the social media companies. Well, absolutely, and I like the point that she made. This is like my takeaway line, and she's like, let's just get that picture off the internet as fast as we can, and go that, from there. That That should be the priority. Absolutely. Scott, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. We have an excess layer of government bureaucracy that's making running our parks incredibly challenging. And so when you get rid of, uh, or sorry, when you, you know, remove that layer of, um, you know, um, that excess layer, it it just makes uh, the operations more seamless and we can be more reactive. 
Is the Vancouver Park Board worth saving? Well, that was Mayor Ken Sim on with us on Friday. He clearly definitely believes that it is not worth saving. He was very clear on that. Now, he recently announced the creation of a working committee to work towards the end of the board and have the city of Vancouver just take it all over. And that, as you know, has not been sitting well with a few people, especially a few of the currently elected park board commissioners. So with us now is Brennan Bastiansky, who's a Vancouver Park Board commissioner and someone who objects to the assertion that the board is broken and can't be fixed. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Now, I know you you heard the mayor's interview and you definitely wanted to respond. Why did you feel so strongly about what he had to say? Well, the, the thing is that um, the, the park board, it's there to make sure that the parks and recreation remain a priority. And the, and the reality is that uh, a number of the things that Ken is complaining about is actually the stuff uh, within the park board realm that's actually looked after by city already. Uh, the aquatic center, the seawall, um, you know, kids pool, all of those, uh, the capital maintenance is done by REFM. Uh, and so that's already failing. So uh, to think that city council is somehow going to like uh, do a better job with these stuff uh, associated with parks. It just, it just doesn't bode well. The, you know, it's there, it's the city side that's not actually keeping it up their end of the bargain. Do you think the park board is working well and, and functions all right? The, the thing is, the, the main point of this whole thing is that the, the park board has been underfunded for decades. Uh, city council took over a number of those, uh, a number of these functions that uh, the can is complaining about, and that's why they're failing. Like as the example he gave last week in your show um, about the, the seawall, Park Board used to have their own engineers that would work on the seawall, and the city took over that and gave that to engineering. But the thing is, uh, the engineer, uh, the engineering skills are specific for the, for the wall, and that's why outside firms are sometimes used, because they used to have that skill set, and the city took that away. And that's just like another example uh, of, of uh, Ken Sam and the ABC team not doing their homework of what's actually happening in the city. Right. But focusing on the actual park board, do you think it's working well? Well, I think it is. I mean, we have, uh, if you look at the the, uh, the park and rec system uh, over the last 135 years, it's one that is admired by everyone in the world. We have world-class parks because of the park board. Uh, and we have crumbling infrastructure because the city is underfunded by the tune of like $20 million a year. Uh, and so, you know, there's there's challenges uh, going all the way back to 135 years. But like every 10 years, and I've got documentation going back nearly 60 years, there have been refinements on how the two bodies of government have adjusted over time. And, you know, the mayor points out, uh, he says there's like, you know, broad sweeping statements that generally not true. But he says there's 40 examples that he could list. But where, where's that list, right? They haven't even got, he hasn't even given one true example that couldn't be fixed simply at the, at the park board level today. Right. But let, let me approach this for you from like just the average person's point of view on this, okay? So you just listed a bunch of things that the city of Vancouver looks after that the general public probably thinks, well, that seems like a park board thing. So then my question is, why do we have this piecemeal of, oh, city of Vancouver looks after that aquatic center and park board looks after this? Why are we doing this? Well, the, the role of the park board is to make sure that parks and rec remain a priority in the city. It's already hard enough to get money from city council. If, they, if city council is the, the sole arbiter or they, they're appointing people, then that means that other things are going to uh, take priority, like housing, like roads, as if city council doesn't have enough on their plate already. Uh, the, the role of the park board is to be able to spend that time in the community, meeting with the people that use the facilities, 
and then they advocate for it. And so our, our role is to make sure that there is that set of redundancy to make sure that uh, someone in the city just doesn't accidentally like pave over a park because of an engineering problem. And that's and that's that is the, the kind of erosion that's happening right now when with the city trying to push into park board territory. Okay, but we will lose green space when we need more. Do you think the park board then has been doing that job? If 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 the public isn't convinced that the park board needs to stay, then has that communication been effective? Well, that's the thing. When you've got the, the mayor's office, you know, in full spin cycle, uh, it's really hard to get the message out there of what the park board actually does. You know, so the uh, if we had the money, like he talks about taking 15 years uh, to build a community center. Well, the city needs to provide more money and we would build one every year. So it's not the park board's fault that the city doesn't give us money. Right. They're, they're prioritizing other things in the budget and uh, and they are taking away uh, the park board's ability to do its own engineering, specialty engineering, like on the seawall. And, and the city is taking over responsibility for maintaining things like uh, the aquatic center and Kitts Pool, which are crumbling. So it just, it, you know, for the city to be able to understand that the park board is there to advocate for them and to make sure that we don't, uh, we don't have our green spaces eroded. Uh, and we have to point out things that the mayor is doing wrong, right? Like the, uh, the transition team doesn't have anyone representing the, the, the recreation centers. Uh, you know, recreation centers were identified as like a non-core asset, that the mayor's financial task force identified that that would be a good place to start selling assets in order to plug the, the budget deficit that he's been able to, uh, that he hasn't been able to balance. Commissioner, and, do, you, so, do you think this is going to erode green spaces? Yes, absolutely. That's the play. Uh, so people need to be, uh, need to be very aware of this because you're, uh, the people in Vancouver were given, uh, were given a vote and that vote uh, was meant to be uh, for a four-year term. And right now, by removing that democracy, uh, it's being eroded. Like today in Vancouver, like that's what it looks like when an autocrat comes in, your votes no longer count. And this autocratic government wants to centralize power. So there's 40% of parks that are not protected. The community centers uh, have all been identified as non-core assets, and, and non-core assets are ready to be sold or given naming rights or privatized. And that's that is what's happening right now. And by appointing, you know, uh, people that are close to the mayor, um, the city needs to have that transparency. The park board is, is providing that to the city and helping people understand and, and helping them wake up that something doesn't pass the smell test. Right. In fact, like listening to your show last week and the garbage that he was spewing, I think we figured out where that putrid smell permeating the lower mainland last week came from, it's from City Hall. Okay, so some harsh words there that you're putting out there. What are you going to do about it, though? Clearly, they're lobbying the provincial government to get these changes. What can you do about this? Well, we have uh, we're um, organizing the community. So you've got there there aren't any allies on the mayor's side. Uh, you know, the the nations have said that they're going to the agree to an engagement process, but not necessarily what the outcome looks like. The unions haven't come out in support. In fact, what we've heard is that the outdoors, the, the collective bargaining union that uh, represents the outdoor staff are against it. Um, and the community centers are all against it and they're, uh, they're lowering up. The premier has even said it's not a priority. He's identified that it's only a handful of people in Vancouver that want to abolish the park board and that it's not a priority. So while Ken's like hopeful that it'll go into the spring sitting, 
the uh, the premier keeps uh, knocking them back and saying, you you know, follow the instructions that were provided. But will you be lobbying so the, the premier? Like, what what will you be doing to make your argument? Well, uh, yeah, we're, we've sent letters requesting meetings uh, with the senior levels of government, which uh, which we're organizing now. Uh, the community centers are, are pressuring their their MLAs. Uh, the NDP have a um, have an election uh, later this year, uh, so they don't want to get in, uh, involved in another like Surrey Police type snafu. And uh, we're organizing uh, like town halls and meetings to go and meet people in the community uh, and helping them direct uh, direct their concerns uh, to uh, to the province. All right, so we will be hearing more about this campaign then. Absolutely. This so this is not going to go how the mayor expects. Um, they they want it done in the spring sitting. The premier's made it uh, clear that uh, Ken was supposed to put a plan together. He hasn't done that. Uh, you know, and that by itself, like moving this transition team, flies in the face of what the premier's instructions were. Right? He was he was supposed to come up with a plan with the nations, the unions, and all the assets, and he hasn't done any of that. So the fact that he thinks that the transition team is going to come in and start taking over, like he doesn't have, he's out of his line. Uh-huh. And so that transition team is an example where the mayor is just uh, is throwing money and resources away and trying to distract from the bigger problems that are going on in the city. Well, listen, thanks very much for your time this morning. Pleasure. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate that. It's Brennan Bastiamski, who's a Vancouver Park Board Commissioner, clearly not happy with Mayor Ken Sim and ABC Vancouver's plans for the Park Board. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. But, oh yeah, this is not going away anytime soon. This is Mornings with Simi. Big announcement on Friday from the provincial government, right? Premier David Eby announcing school cell phone restrictions and legislation to try and hold social media companies more accountable. So why this emphasis? Well, it's about trying to prevent cyberbullying and sextortion. Now, there's a lot to this. How is the provincial government going to approach all of this? We're going to get some details now with the help of Nikki Sharma, Attorney General of BC. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. So first off, where did the impetus for this come from? What What is the government hoping to achieve with all this? Yeah, so I think uh, like a lot of people in society in every part of the world, we're thinking about how technology impacts young people and what are some of the negative things there that we need to step in to make sure there's good in there, but there's also harms. And so it's part of our government's approach to make sure young people are protected from the harms of technology. Um, and there was a few components to it. And one key one that's being is live today is our intimate images protection process. So there's two parts to it. Um, We know that this stuff can have really devastating mental health impacts on young people. So when somebody has an image of you and they're threatening, like the sextortion case that happened is happening far too often for young people. Um, It's really, really hard on people up to the point of, you know, loss of life. And, and so the support service that we're launching today is there to help people that are going through this, but also direct them to legal process that's also live today, um, that where you can get an order, it's an online process, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to get those images taken down and for that person to stop threatening to distribute or distributing that image. So we really want the legal system to step up to protect our young people and to help parents navigate through the difficulties of the harms brought by technology. Okay, and so tell me about the measures then uh, where cell phones in schools become a part of that. Yeah, so in the school context, that one of the issues I think that um, is happening in the science kind of shows this is that when kids are learning and they get distracted by cell phones, Um, In the classroom during that instructional time, it's hard for them to refocus. It takes them a while to get back to the content of the lesson. And 
And I know that there are teachers in this province that have these policies and they're, they're trying to navigate, but so are parents. They're trying to figure out, you know, my kid wants a cell phone. All the other kids in the class have a cell phone. I'm having a lot of pressure, but I'm worried about the impacts it's going to have on my kid. And so what we're saying is we're, we want all school districts and schools in BC um, for next year to have a cell phone use policy that restricts it during instructional hours. Um, so there's a way that you can use the kind of good parts if it's for instruction, but to limit that, the negative distractions and all those things that come with it with, you know, social media pressure and all the things that we want to have kids learning in a classroom and not distracted by. Um, but also we know that they also have to use technology in the world. It's part of their life more and more so, and it changes rapidly. So a big part of that is digital literacy programming, which is another part of the announcement, like getting into schools, teaching kids how to use technology for their benefit, for the good parts of it, but also to be protected from the harmful parts. Okay, so this is going to be up to the school districts to decide how much or how little they want to see cell phones in the classroom? Well, we the way our education system works and one of the strengths of it is we really rely on local delivery through the school boards and the teachers in the classroom. So there may be particular circumstances that arise from different um, schools or best practices. So it's, it's about working together with our partners in education, but saying also that we want there to be a policy um, in every part of the province. Um, that's administered in that school so parents can know that their school has one that's about restricting cell phone use um, during instructional hours. Okay, so what is the message in from the province? I'm just trying to be clear on that. Does that mean that there will be no cell phones in classrooms unless the teacher says it's okay? Yeah, there are. What we've heard is that there are some kids with um, learning needs that require a use of technology or acquire um, some form of, of, and we want to make sure that's protected, but also different teachers have had different ways of introducing this. Like, for example, cell phones are all in one drawer in the classroom um, during class hours, you know, collect them in pockets, keep them in your bag. So this kind of like on the ground um, decision making will be up to the, the the teachers in that school, but there will be a, a general policy about um, restricting cell phones during instructional hours. Okay, so will the schools will are, are, do some districts not have a policy on that already? Yeah, I think it's been um, there's been some that I think have been working really well, and some teachers have been doing it. But we want it to be across the board, so everybody, every school, every parent knows that their school has a policy on on cell phone usage in their school and how it's restricted during their instructional hours. So it's a it's across the board, you know, instead of like some that are doing it and some that aren't. Okay, so I want to ask you as well about the legislation regarding uh, social media companies here. How, how is that going to work? What is BC planning to do? Yeah, so it's part of the work that I think is really part of the role of the Attorney General. And I've been on your show talking about um, the opioid litigation that we had. So the general idea of the legislation that I'll be introducing in the spring is that if there, if through a company's wrongdoing, and sometimes knowingly, so they knew it, and it was something that uh, maybe led to profit for them, but it caused a lot of harm to society. And we see that in some of the algorithms that are put into social media companies that are really harmful to some people or, or especially young people. Society shouldn't pay for that. Like we, every person that is part of British Columbia that pays, uh, taxpayers that pay into the pocket of, of like better healthcare systems that need to respond to these harms, you know, more uh, teaching for 
students about digital literacy, all the costs that government need to incur because of the harm done by this company, then we think that they should pay. The company should pay, not the public. So this legislation will set up a framework for the attorney general to pursue damages. So to go after companies like social media companies for these algorithms, get the costs for the healthcare costs, like the increased costs to educational programs, the impacts on society. So um, they can be accountable and not the taxpayers in BC. Is this being done elsewhere or is BC trying this for the first time? Um, well, I think BC's taken the lead in Canada when it comes to um, our our role in, in, in actual litigation. So the Attorney General playing that role. We did it in tobacco and opioid um, lo- lo- sorry, litigation. But this, in the States, there's been examples of attorneys general taking on social media companies. They have more of a role or tradition in that. Um, we, we're stepping in when it comes to healthcare costs here, and we'll continue to kind of look for opportunities to make sure that um, we can protect the public from these costs. So you'll have to show that, though, right, in court, that there are these spinoff healthcare costs that result from the negative aspects of social media. Are you confident that can be shown? Yeah, so the way the legislation, and I'll, I'm happy it wants to be introduced in spring to come on and talk to you about it in detail, but, but the way we're drafting it and putting it together is it, it's, it kind of builds off the tested example with opioids. So you can look at population level harms. So we can show that as a government, we've had to spend this much extra on, um, you know, for example, with the opioid, the healthcare impacts of the opioid crisis. Or we've had to spend this much extra, if you think about it, for social media on educational programs in schools because of the harmful impacts that, that these algorithms that this company was putting at had on society. So it helps us look, instead of a, a individual lawsuit, the kind of population-level impacts, um, and, and that will be how we would present it in court. Wow, okay, so do you envision all of this happening in the first six months of this year? That's a pretty ambitious list of stuff. Yeah, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of work to do. I think um like everybody, we think I think as attorney general that the justice system needs to step up when it comes to technology and and today's announcement about the intimate images protection, so helping individuals seek damages, get recourse if somebody's threatening uh, to distribute an image of them online. I think this is part of us stepping up and I know as a government we're going to continue to look for opportunities that we can you know, make sure that, um, you know, all the impacts, the negative impacts of social media and technology, and there's a legal process to, to help people through that. I think that's part of our job. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. No problem. Thanks for having me. That's Nikki Sharma, Attorney General of BC, talking about the uh, multi-pronged approach that they are taking towards social media companies and the harm that potentially that does to kids in particular uh, with a number of different initiatives. The cell phones in schools will be very interesting to see how that develops, how school districts deal with that, how that impacts you. Like as parents are the ones who often want kids to have that cell phone in school, in class, so they can be reached. Is everybody willing to adjust here if this is better for the kids, right, to keep that out of the classroom? We'll find out about that. We'll talk about it as it comes up and as well the issue of suing the social media companies BC kind of breaking new ground on that one too it's going to be interesting to watch this is mornings with Simi for almost eight years I mean eight years BC has been in a public health emergency and during that time despite efforts the opioid overdose crisis has only gotten worse and during all that time, BC's chief coroner, Lisa LaPointe, has tried her best over and over to raise the alarm, to raise awareness, to just 
try and change the trajectory of those numbers and to get the people in charge to do everything they could to change the trajectory of those numbers. But now things are going to change because Lisa LaPointe is retiring in a few days, actually. So what will that do for this? What will that do for awareness and fighting for change? Well, Lisa LaPointe, BC's retiring chief coroner, joins us now. Thank you very much for being here. Well, thank you very much for having me. How are you feeling about your imminent retirement? Mixed feelings, I have to say. I mean, there's a, a, I certainly have an urgency to accomplish a significant number of things that I have on my desk in the next uh, two, three weeks. So there's that. And also, you know, looking forward, looking forward to something different, looking forward to uh, maybe a bit of the luxury of time, which is something that I've, I've not had for many, many um, years. And then just leaving some space and, and see what comes next. I, I won't come back to this work. Um, this was, uh, has been an, an amazing career, um, such an honor to have been doing this work for all these years. Um, but I will stay involved somehow, and um, we'll see what happens. Has this work, as you put it, has it taken a toll on you? Because it couldn't have been easy every month talking about those overdose numbers, and it must have been such a frustrating situation. It takes a toll, you know, and and not just me. It's taken a toll on our agency. Um, Drug toxicity deaths are the most significant number of deaths that we investigate um, in terms of numbers as a coroner service, and we have a dedicated team, our acute substance toxicity unit that uh, investigates all of these deaths. So we have consistency in practice and um, engagement with partner agencies. Can, the, the folks in that team can really have a solid understanding of, of how things are changing and where the gaps are and where new uh, initiatives are being tried. But we get we get um, worn down uh, a little bit, although it's an honour uh, to speak with families and, um, um, you know, we, we want to do what we can. But you know, if you have empathy at all, you feel their grief. And of course we do, and we feel their grief. And it is hard to hear that grief and the devastation, you know, week after week, month after month, year after year, so many thousands of families. So so that is hard. Um, I, you know, I will say um, as much as I'm, I'm honored to have done it and grateful that I've had an opportunity to make a difference, the grief of, of the families has been very challenging. Was there something in there that you can say, well, you know, we, we did this, this changed for the better, or the, even though the numbers have gone up and up, do you feel like, well, there are some things that we did, that we, we put in an effort here? Yeah, absolutely. You know, especially in the early days um, when this crisis was uh, was first, you know, first started, and Perry Kendall was the provincial health officer at the time, declared the public health emergency, and this monthly reporting that we've done, which is unique in Canada, where every month we um, do a preliminary report and we say, based on our investigation of the scene, the body, the history of the person, the preliminary toxicology results, we believe this death is related to acute. Um, drug toxicity, and we've been able to provide frontline agencies, partner agencies, with some really valuable information. So, um, you know, where where we know more people are dying at home, and so the Take Home Naloxone program to really encourage people to have naloxone, have somebody available to use it. Um, you know, call nine one one. We we gave. I went back to Ottawa and um, gave evidence a few years ago on the. Um, uh, I believe it's called the Good Samaritan Act. So if you if you're with somebody who is experiencing an overdose, 
and you call 911 for help, um, people you know wouldn't be charged for possession or, or anything related right. to the drugs. And that was a change. So uh, there's been a lot. I mean, I could go on, but there's been a lot of really good things that have happened. Certainly our death review panels, we've brought together the most amazing people who've really committed experts in their field, um, who've committed their time and effort to really thoughtful recommendations. So, you know, there's been a lot of good work. We know so much more than we did eight years ago when this crisis started. Uh, but, you know, we, we have still many, many big gaps uh, that are preventing uh, our province from turning this crisis around. Yeah, let's talk about those. What are some of those big gaps that you you think are happening? Well, there's a few things. I think, I, I think you know, Possibly at the beginning of this crisis, we didn't have an understanding about how many people used drugs in our province. And now some really good modeling by experts in the field in our province believe up to 225,000 people are using illicit substances. Um, So that's 225,000 people at risk of dying. So we know that the measures that we need to implement need to be significant and well, we're certainly grateful for, you know, the province's announcement of beds, which there isn't really a definition of bed, but what it means is more resources are being focused to uh, support people to wellness. We know that won't come close to um, identifying the risks uh, that are there for all of these people, 100,000 people with an opioid use disorder of those 225,000. So that's a significant opioid dependency that's going to need some um, to help them um, to wellness. It's going to need some real focus, and that's just not available. So, you know, we, 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 it's interesting. For many years, I think, as communities and certainly as governments and our Controlled Drugs and Substances Act would would show this, we saw this as an individual problem. So this is individual people uh, making choices, and um, they were held responsible in a criminal fashion. They were punished. What we've now recognized, of course, that this is very much a health issue. Um, drug dependency is a health um, concern. And when you have, in our province, almost 14,000 deaths over the last seven years, across Canada, 40,000 deaths, then you take a step back and think, maybe it's not just an individual problem. Maybe this is a systems problem. Maybe what we have in place wasn't designed to help people. And in fact, maybe what we have in place is harming people further. And we need to all step back and take a, a, a review of the, the, the approach that we have at a systems level and look at our legislation, look at our policy and look at our, um, you know, what we have available to people who are experiencing substance use uh, challenges or substance use dependency. Do you think, though, that the system that reached the, pub, the general public then reached its limit with that to say, but that's as far as we are willing to go? I think, you know, it's interesting when I speak to people one-on-one or group by group, and I I often get asked to speak to different groups or people in in my agency do, the coroners, and there's often a lot of resistance and um, people just want this problem to go away, you know, and there's a certain element of the population that just wants to, you know, throw everybody in jail or lock them all up and force them into treatment, uh, which we know, by the way, research has shown over and over and over is not effective. It sounds easy, but it is not effective long-term. 
but for the most part, when you when we talk about the history and we talk about the challenges and we talk about the recommendations that our panels have made based on in evidence, then people understand, ah, you know what? We do need a different approach. Yes, we absolutely need prevention. We do not want to encourage people to use substances that may cause them harm, whether it's uh, tobacco or alcohol or fast food or, or particularly um, or drugs, you know, or even uh, over-the-counter drugs that can have a really negative impact on your life. So we absolutely want to help people understand the risks, um, help people make choices, informed choices that, that will help them be healthy, um, but also recognize that where people are dying by the thousands, then we we aren't doing the right thing, uh, allowing the illicit drug market to flourish. And we, our policies actually support the illicit drug market in not providing safer alternatives, regulated, very carefully um, uh, uh, organized, overseen, um, that really our current policies support this horrible illicit drug market that is so toxic and so dangerous. Did you definitely get the impression then that that was as far as the government was willing to go, that there wasn't going to be any more systems breaking down of the illicit drug market? I think government is, uh, well, I know, having been in government for almost 30 years, government is very... uh, um, very much listens to where the public is going. And I think the public uh, has a lot of fear right now um, because of the many decades of, you know, messaging that drug use is bad, people who use drugs are bad. The the kind of knee-jerk reaction is, no, 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 we would never do that. But when you think about it, when you think about the thousands at risk, and they are our family members, they're not people somewhere else that we don't know. They're there are family members in our communities. There are brothers and sisters and our neighbors' kids and, um, you know, our people we work with, um, their sons and daughters and, and our sons and daughters. I think people are starting to have an understanding that we can do better, um, but it takes time, and we need to really help the public understand what the recommendation is and what it isn't. It is not about free drugs to anybody who wants drugs. Um, just like our drugstores are not about free drugs to anybody who wants drugs. And there are drugs in our drugstores now that would take thousands of lives if used inappropriately. We know that, but it's about educating people, helping people understand, making sure that what they buy is safe. So if they buy a bottle of Tylenol, that is the, the pills in there are exactly what they're supposed to be. I think we the public um, the public is a much more able to uh, comprehend and, and mm. make good decisions than we think. We've just not provided the right information the right way. We've tried, and we'll continue to try as a BC Coroner Service. Um, and we and it, it's a change, and we all fear change. So I, I think it's, it's going to take time. Well, thank you very much for your time today, and, and good luck in retirement. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity to be on your show. I appreciate it. That's Lisa LaPointe, BC's Chief Coroner, who will retire in a couple of weeks after uh, years in the job and talking about, you know, one of the big issues that we see and talk to her about every month is those toxic drug overdose numbers too. And things sadly have not changed on that front. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.
This is Mornings with Simi.